Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April 11, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. We have three excellent guests this week and a special guest host. Joining me on the interrogation side of the table is Claudia Haupt, associate professor of law and political science at Northeastern University School of Law. Uh, she joined the faculty here in 2018. Her current research is situated at the intersection of the First Amendment, health law and torts, in the context of professional speech. She's published articles in major journals, including the Yale Law Journal, Vanderbilt, Boston College Law Review, University of Penn, Journal of Common Law, and the George Washington Law Review. Her book, Religion, State, Relations in the United States and Germany, The Quest for Neutrality, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. Our guests are Ignacio Cofoni, an assistant professor of law at McGill University. His research focuses on information privacy, technology law, and behavioral law and economics. His latest projects address how to conceptualize and model privacy harms and how to design informational rules that prevent discrimination. Before joining McGill, Cofoni was a research fellow at the NYU Information Law Institute, a resident fellow at the Yale Law School Information Society Project, and a legal advisor for the city of Buenos Aires. His recent publications have focused on privacy privacy and artificial intelligence. Jessica Roberts is the director of the Health Law and Policy Institute and an alumni college professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. She specializes in health law, disability law, and genetics and the law. In 2015, Professor Roberts received the university-wide Teaching Excellence Award and the Provost Certificate of Excellence. She was named a 2018 Greenwall Faculty Scholar in Bioethics and a 2016 Health Policy Scholar with Baylor College of Medicine Center for Medical Ethics and Health of Policy, where for uh, trivia stalkers, uh, she and I had dinner uh, with 20 of our colleagues just the day before last, wasn't it? Yes, in Houston, and now we meet again in Boston. Oh, the jet lag. <laughs> oh, dear. And Anna Santos Rushman is an assistant professor in the Center for Health Law Studies and the Center for International Comparative Health Law at St. Louis University. She teaches FDA law and policy, emerging health technologies, uh, innovation law and policy, and property law. Her writing has appeared in the UCLA Law Review, Duke Law and Technology Review, Yale Law Journal Forum, and the Miami Business Law Review, amongst others. So before we get into the literally tens of substantive topics between us we could probably uh, manage a conversation about. I suppose we should explain, Claudia, why we are sitting all together in a room in Boston. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me as your as your guest host. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so being uh, on the interrogation side of the table is especially wonderful. And welcome to all of you. We're here at Northeastern uh, University School of Law for the promises and perils of emerging health technologies annual health law conference. So we have a lot of interesting and potentially scary things to talk about. And we're all talking on different panels, I think, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Jessica, what are you going to be talking about? My particular talk is about some of the work that I've been doing related to an NIH grant about reclassification of genetic variants. And so when you have a variant that we don't know what it means, it has unknown clinical significance, and then it gains clinical significance, what are the potential legal obligations someone might have um, with respect to letting the patient know that now she's at higher risk than they originally thought? So it's a really exciting project, and this is the first time I get to share it with folks. So. Well, 
Well, good luck getting a word in with those two on your panel. I know. Ignacio, what are you talking about? Uh, I'm in the health privacy panel. I'm going to present a paper on how we can incorporate privacy concerns in health impact evaluations in order to develop uh, e-health technologies that uh, are not halted nor override privacy concerns, but rather can take them into account from the get-go. And Anna? And I'm going to be in the artificial intelligence panel, and actually one of my interrogators, Claudia, is going to be um, there as well. I'll be presenting my most recent project. It's called um, Artificial Intelligence Monism and Legal Reactivity, uh, and it shares some insights regulatory, uh, I think uh, insights from the way patent law as adapted to technologies that were deemed highly disruptive and were challenging legal paradigms we uh, had throughout the 20th century. So I thought it was interesting, and, uh, uh, and maybe Claudia is no doubt part of the planning committee, uh, will have particular insight on this, but you, you don't usually see all of these pieces glued together into a single conference, which I think is interesting. Um, do they have in common just the perils and the promises, or are these issues and technologies and trends in healthcare delivery in particular that are sort of converging and, and changing how we're, how we're looking at healthcare generally? You know, I think sort of from the from the planning perspective, I think the I think sort of the idea was that uh, we just want to display sort of the breadth and depth of of all of these problem areas, and they all come together in the way that we access healthcare, the way that we interact with healthcare. The other kind of the, this is the the promises and perils. I think is the right way to look at it because I think one of the things that sets Northeastern uh, apart is our sort of you know public interest and and social justice driven um, approach. To to things, and so we really want to make sure that that we have um, more than perhaps the promises, also the perils, um, right? So the the idea is, you know, who's in the room, who gets to make decisions, what types of technologies do we develop? Do we just do what's technologically possible, or also what's socially desirable? And so this sort of bringing together of the descriptive, you know, this is what exists, um, which is a wide range of things, and the normative, what do we want to do with this, and what should we do with this? I think works across all of those broad ranges of, of topics that you just mentioned. Do you think that non-US scholars would apply the same labeling? Would see these as as promises or perils or or would they use a different kind of language, different sensibilities would come into play. I, I, I look around the room because I've, I've got a lot of comparativists here. There's a lot of comparative expertise around the table, that's for sure. I'm just going to take a very kind of rough stab at sort of what I think a German answer to this would be. And I think um, you would probably have a different set of perils because there's a much different approach to privacy and data privacy on the one hand. There's also a much different approach to just healthcare delivery. Um, and so a lot of the questions about ensuring Access to underserved populations, I think, looks very different in a in a healthcare system that has, you know, now that we're talking about um, Medicare for all, you know, German the German system does have private insurance, but it it also has a statutory insurance regime. And so, if you if you're operating in a system like that, I think I think the questions that you ask are different. So I think you know those are those are probably the two factors that I would say would look different. And also, for instance, in Europe, um, most national constitutions will recognize some something that we could label a right to health, uh, which is something that at, least at the federal level we don't have. And I think that informs a lot of the normative behavior.
behavior of the research questions and just the sheer reaction from lay people. When I say, no, we don't recognize that uh, right in the U.S. Constitution, a lot of people in, in Europe will tell me, wait, what? What do you mean? Like the most advanced country in the world. Uh, and it's just a, a very different uh, worldview. That being said, the reaction to the changing role of technologies and particularly how fast um, they they keep changing and, you know, the perennial question of how does the law catch up and should the law catch up and how ex anti-ex post, when is the right moment to intervene? Those are semi-universal questions. Is that even a concept, semi-universal? But I, I think there's some shared language there, even though some of the foundational principles are just different. I think, uh, well, in South America, maybe the language would be promesas y riesgos, but uh, more seriously, um, outside of the U.S., uh, at the, in terms of privacy, uh, at the level of developing the technologies, I think the concerns would be very similar in terms of uh, do these technologies collect, do, do the technologies of e-health collect the data that they actually need to, to perform their services, or do they collect also other data they do not necessarily need, like your voice recorder asking you for your location 10 minutes ago. Um, to which I said no. To which you said no. Very good, Claudia. And I also said no. <laughs> Jessica also said no. But, but a major difference, is, a difference in terms of privacy is that in the U.S., the provision of health and the employment context interact in a very different way than in other countries because of what you were mentioning about, uh, about provision of health. So that creates further risk for privacy that uh, Jessica knows a lot about. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so do you think also that... So do you think questions like whether healthcare data are social goods, public goods, or um, how we treat data that's being collected, um, do you think that those are, are influenced by sort of principles of solidarity, for example, um, that that at a high normative level sort of, you know, at least gives you that, that sort of starter for 10 as you sort of move in into the space. Whereas in the US, we, we would have to sort of try and address those issues before we ever get beyond that to, to even talk about uh, these uh, the, the detail of these issues, that um, our, our system starts from a private actor, non-public space assumption. So it's quite difficult to get to, to some of the normative questions that our, our friends outside the US are probably uh, are very familiar with. I think so. There's a fantastic article that I assigned to my genetics class uh, about American attitudes towards direct-to-consumer genetic testing, I think by Sandra Sujin Lee, but I should, I should look it up before you air this to make sure that I'm right. Um, but one of the things that she does that makes it a really useful piece is she goes through and talks about some of the normative foundations in the United States for how we interact with our particularly genetic data. Uh, and one of the the governing principles is a notion of civic republicanism. And to be a good citizen, one has to mitigate one's own risk. And so that a lot of the folks that engage in some of that direct-to-consumer genetic testing see themselves as being responsible. And it's very much within the framework of this American narrative of personal responsibility that I don't think you, you have in other countries. Um, so I, I think, at least with respect to how we interact with our genetic data and our other health-related data, there is a sense that um, you know we should be taking responsibility for our health in the United States in a, in a way that I don't know is necessarily shared around the world. Let's stay with you, Je uh, Jessica, and talk a little little more genetics and a couple of the papers that, that you've had out recently. And and, and, and let's be clear that the, the usual faculty workshop rules will apply and you, oh, will be, you will be expected to have a thesis and a roadmap. <laughs> so... Um, 
you've been talking a little bit about property yes. interests here yes. and conversion. You know, it's been a while since I looked at California Supreme Court decision in Moore and sort of thought that it was kind of game over. Yes. Um, and so I was at BioLaw at Stanford a few weeks ago, and I opened my talk presenting this particular paper, which is currently a book chapter um, that I've submitted in conjunction with Petrie Flom's Consuming Genetics Conference in May, but I'm hoping to expand it to a full-length law review article considering what a right to genetic conversion might look like. And I agree, most people think that this issue has been settled. I actually got a three-year grant from the Greenwald Foundation to study genetic ownership interests. And what I told the attendees at BioLaw was that, you know, people are so averse to this idea of property as a model for genetics. Everyone, the, the reaction was either this is something that Moore already decided, or this is something really dangerous. So that at best, my three-year project would be useless. And at worst, it could be harmful. Um, and so, and I said that that's the intuition, but, but I disagree. Um, and I actually think there is some value to giving people at least limited ownership rights related to their genetic data and their specific circumstances uh, where I think that makes sense. And to keep it brief, I will say specifically, I think in the consumer genetics context, as well in the context of genetic stalking or unconsented genetic testing, in those situations where you're outside the clinical treatment relationship and you're outside the research relationship where you don't have a clear cause of action, I think that's where genetic conversion can do some really exciting work. The, the door was not kicked in, but at least sort of a, a cracked little open? cracked open. Was it by the Alaska statute? So the, there's the Alaska statute. So there's a couple different current cases. Um, so the, the one that you're thinking of is Cole v. Gene by Gene, and that's the case where the guy is suing under the Alaska privacy statute, and there was a standing issue, and the court went ahead and said that based on the statute, there was an injury in fact that was related to conversion um, as well as invasions of privacy. But the really exciting case for me is this kind of quirky, high-profile case between these two businessmen who are in a dispute that started related to who was going to manage a tennis court in their swanky Florida beachfront property. So this is uh, Pierenboom v. Perlmutter. And I don't know if listeners are familiar with this case, uh, but what ended up happening is these two guys had a, had a fight over you know who was managing the tennis court. Things got nasty. Uh, Pierenboom started receiving a lot of really bizarre hate mail. Um, and so then he managed to call the Perlmutters in for a deposition related to this other case. And during that deposition, he covertly collected their DNA and then tested it for forensic testing to try to link them to the hate mail. Um, and so the Perlmutters were not happy about this. And what they ended up doing is they ended up suing in, uh, in Florida state court and they sued for genetic conversion and wouldn't you know it the uh, the judge did not throw it out on the motion to dismiss and so that's exciting that at least one judge thinks that there might be some kind of meaningful cause of action here um, with respect to you know taking someone's genetic material without their consent and testing it so what's the sort of objection to using a property model with regard to this and and I and I'm, I'm gonna then sort of throw that to Ignacio to Perfect. ask the same question about 
about using a property model or the flaws alleged to be using a property model in, in privacy? Sure. So I, I think that, and, and I've, I've argued in previous work, that I think our aversion to a property law model really comes down to a misunderstanding about what property actually is. So I have the benefit of being married to a property law scholar. Uh, and when you talk to the property law folks, they actually have a pretty expansive view of what constitutes property. But when you go into the bioethics world, we think of property as sort of Demsetzian costs and benefits, and it's all about the market. And so I think people have an aversion to property because they say, oh, genetic data, this is personal, this is about privacy, this isn't about ownership, this is too precious to commercialize and put on a market. And so, you know, this could do damage to our personhood and our dignity if we start inserting property interests. But if you actually talk to the property law scholars, they will tell you property can do all kinds of wonderful things. Like the School of Progressive Property is all about how property rights can actually encourage human flourishing. So if you take an expansive, progressive view of property, I think that property has a lot of potential value for the field of bioethics that we've underestimated for some time just based on this idea that property is about you know rational actors and costs and benefits in the market. And I guess in the privacy space, if you characterize the personal information, for example, as property, then it has persistence across different data collectors or data processes, which is one of our problems at the moment. Privacy and confidentiality were really easy when there are only two people in the room. But once you get the data being passed on from data collector to data broker uh, and so on, you need some different kind of model. And that's where I can see persistence as being useful. Yeah, I agree. So I'm not married to a property law scholar, so I'm going to talk about property <laughs> in a less informed way. Um, but uh, I do think that there are some limits to the property model of personal information. Um, mainly, I think that the property model leads to an over-reliance an over on consumer consent, which is what most privacy regulations like well, paradigmatically the GDPR, but most other privacy regulations have been doing. I believe the reason why that happened is because, as you mentioned, back in the day, uh, privacy violations were easy to identify and harm was easy to identify. You you pick through a keyhole, you listen through a door. But um, in, in the context of the internet, with decentralized content creation, with information aggregation, then as privacy harms became more difficult to identify, then we moved to consider the privacy violation from something that produced a privacy harm to the violation of a regulated conduct, similar to how other bodies of law have done when harm was difficult to identify. For example, environmental law that took it out of the tort world and into the regulation world, although it kind of kept both at the same time. Now, this is, this is a great move, but the problem with this is that, first of all, it relies on the effectiveness of consumer consent. And to the environment of uncertainty that consumers sometimes have, uh, and even I have, even though I think about these things all day, every single day, uh, the, the guarantee of consent is not always effective at, at preventing harm. And second of all, once you consent to give out your personal information, sometimes that consent, especially if you rely at least in a narrowly construed property model, implies that you're giving away your information and whoever is acquiring such information can either give it to third parties or behave in a certain way that can be harmful for you. So consent is, I think, is not the best barrier. And second of all, after you consent, companies don't have incentives to take high levels of care because they face no liability for low care if we only rely on such consent. So I think that we should move to a rather mixed system where you have some property rules type of protection and some liability rules type of protection at the same time.
I think that's 100% correct. Um, and this is admittedly when I've presented this work, um, that is some of the pushback that I've gotten has been related to, you know, consent and consent is in fact a defense to conversion. So if you agree to share your genetic data, you no longer have a cause of action. And so, you know, people have said, aren't we just going to end up with some sort of, you know, with pro forma, like you get a blanket consent and that's not really going to do the kind of work that we want from our privacy regulations. So I think that's what, I think that's 100% an accurate depiction of the shortcomings of the property model in that context. I guess part of pushback against a property model is that those kind of very fixed rules can hamper innovation. But I, I turn to someone whose beloved work actually has property in the title, right? Intellectual property. How did these observations hit your you and your space, Anna? Well, I feel I should start by saying I'm not married to a property scholar. <laughs> But I'm the property scholar. Well, not technically, but I'm teaching property right now. Um, so I actually get to, to to teach more. That makes you a property scholar, I think. Uh, yes. I mean, by training, I'm an intellectual property um, so scholar. So your partner is married to a property scholar, which makes you even more qualified about property than being married to a property scholar. I think so. My <laughs> my spouse, is he's also an intellectual property scholar, but he teaches property so close enough. Yeah, and, and, and Jessica, I teach more the class before we turn to intellectual property. So sort of the progression, things you can own. We, we actually go, we start the class with Dred Scott and we end up with more. Um, so property in oneself, parts of your body and things like that. And then and now let me tell you about the intangible side of property, if you think they belong in sort of the same realm, which I often, uh, I often doubt. But I, I think what's um, interesting, both from a property perspective and from an IP perspective, um, is that we've finally begun acknowledging the shortcomings of purely analog thinking between the two realms, but we've also become much more uh, flexible in thinking across the borders. So you're talking um, about the specific effect that new understandings of property might have on genetics, but we're seeing that with intellectual property as well. So I'm thinking about the um, work of Tim Holbrook, for instance, at Emory, using the idea of possession in patent law. I'm thinking about the Supreme Court last year in oil state saying that, hey, perhaps um, patent rights are not property rights, which uh, are opening the door for a lot of people, including myself, to say, hey, maybe we should look at some types of innovation. I, I'm thinking primarily about vaccines because that's what I work with the most, um, and look into liability regimes that would actually help to bring vaccines to consumers faster and, and cheaper. You can't really do that if you have uh, a very um, rigid model of property rights. If you say that patent-protected innovation is subject to a rigid, a rigid sets of property-like rules, but if you think that sometimes you can apply more flexible models like liability regimes, then you have a pathway um, to bring certain drugs or innovations to uh, to the general public. I just wanted to jump in on the innovation part of this, because what strikes me as really interesting in this conversation is sort of our need to figure out whether we want to adapt our kind of classic models of mm. property, privacy, to these new types of developments that we're seeing now, or whether we need a, a whole new approach to regulate that kind of define, or, or maybe it's, you know, defying the borders of kind of the disciplines in the, you know, I'm thinking the, the 1L curriculum, right? So the torts things and the property things, and we, you know, sort everything into buckets. So in what sense is this, this innovation part of the story kind of pushing us to rethink all of those old boundaries? If we're disrupting the technology, can we disrupt the law that's and the legal right, paradigm right. And, and come up with something different? Right. That's a, I, I think that's a really great question because it's, 
it's very much, I think, the tendency of lawyers and law professors to think in terms of causes of actions and buckets and precedent and all that. And so we might not be as creative as we could be. And so maybe that's what we need to do when we're encountering promises and perils of these, these emerging sorts of technologies is we need to be thinking outside the box in terms of how we, we regulate them. And I think I agree with that. I mean, in, in the work that I'm doing on AI, I'm not at all happy with, with the existing boxes. Yes, we could push AI into them, but it really would be sort of ramming that, you know, the kid's toy thing, the square thing into the top of the round um, yeah. plastic bucket. Um, it's an obvious tendency that we will just try and sort of grow the cat category or, or, or slightly re-engineer the, car- the category. But you, you hope, often against hope, that when something really big comes along, um, like the impact of technology on employment, on how we view property, intellectual property, privacy, and for me, the real perils and promises of AI, um, uh, you really do wonder whether it's possible to construct a, a, a very new regime um, that, that is actually useful. But the process of doing that See, is really hard. Do, do I get to ask? I'm not on the interrogator side, but do I get to ask a question? Because I think... I think I think that's really fascinating and the the question for me is is how to get courts to have buy-in and I guess it would have to come from the ledge right you would have to have a, a statute that's sort of a path-breaking you know disruptive statute and that's how we would get at it you probably would see um, levers being placed in both in state and federal law and in judicial opinions but you would hope that scholars would be sort of in the background doing sort of norm formation mm-hmm. and then seeing what what you need to sort of pull out of that to put into 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 doctrine to sort of make these sorts of things work but i mean i think the the example for me are uh, at the moment those things that we would think of as the primary methods for regulating healthcare ai would be fda device regulation and state practice of medicine regulation and those are both pretty bad buckets for what AI is. So in the genetic context, one of the things that I've been meaning to write for several years now and don't ever seem to get around to it is thinking about the possibility of what individual people could do or even biotech companies via contracts or terms of service. So I wonder if some of this, you know, will be individual people, um, you know, at least with respect to biospecimens and data possibly negotiating to have a stronger legal claim, you know, via some kind of contractual arrangement, or even when we're talking about the technologies themselves, all these technologies have terms of service, right? And and so maybe that's an area where we'll see some regulation happening, you know, with respect to, you know, private parties kind of DIY. So yeah, so I think private ordering is a very important piece of this. The, the downside, or at least one downside, I'd argue, is that it tends to favor a kind of a black box, a legal black box approach, right? Filled with gag clauses and all sorts of things. Whereas with something as revolutionary as AI, particularly as it impacts patients who are vulnerable, we need maximum transparency. Um, but I, I absolutely, that's how the technology companies will, will, will attempt it. 
One of the one of the really interesting things about the way that some of these technologies and maybe particularly AI disrupts different legal fields is that sometimes, as you say, it throws at us something completely new that we have never seen before and any legal analogy will fall short, right? But sometimes what it does is it makes more salient a problem that we had all along and that it wasn't relevant enough for us to see. And the fact that now we have this new technology that makes it more salient, maybe should n- they're, they're, the proper reaction to that should maybe not be issue a new regulation, but to rethink how we thought about the problem in the first place. Maybe one example of this is copyright, right? So having CDs or having uh, MP3 files, maybe mainly having MP3 files through the internet made copying songs way easier than it was before, right? But the fact that that way of copying was easier than it was before, so we threw it as a new problem, maybe maybe just made more salient something that we've had all along, right? And you can think about AI doing that in different ways. For example, with um, with disparate impact discrimination, one of the, one of the problems that we have when we have disparate impact mach- uh, discrimination led by machine learning is the difficulty in determining a concept of fairness that we want to use to determine that. And to some extent, that is a new problem because to some extent that is uh, a problem in identifying disparate impact that we did not have before. But to another extent, it is just defining what we meant uh, with disparate impact in the first place. So in in some way, while it is while machine learning is disrupting the way that we think about the law, it is helping us rethink blurry categories that we've had all along. And Ignacio, you mentioned um, copyright, and sometimes it's very instructive to see what happened in the legal fields that are supposed to promote innovation in some fashion, and how they dealt with what the time at the time was really disruptive uh, from a technological perspective. So thinking back to the late 20th century, when VCRs were introduced, and for our younger readers, um, that's what we had before, just TiVoing everything. Uh, but the problem was that you were making a copy at home of a movie, right? And that was highly disruptive, that power that uh, suddenly you had at home to violate copyright norms. And when eventually the, the case uh, made it to, to the Supreme Court, the only way the court could tell us that there had been no copyright violation was by creating this concept of just time shifting. You're going to watch the movie later and saying, and the technology itself has a number that's significant of non-infringing uses. This is not a copyright concept. This is a patent law concept that the court just imported Uh, into copyright. So that speaks to this idea that judicial interpretation uh, will also evolve as the technology evolves. So sometimes we'll need profound changes. I think Nick is correct that um, FDA will have to um, think about AI in ways it's not doing right now and this idea of software as a medical device and AI as possibly medical devices has a lot of shortcomings and sometimes we'll need profound changes like that. Other times we just need to be more creative in the way we've we're interpreting existing uh, doctrines. And a lot of scholars in the privacy field have been good about doing um, that. I'm thinking about the work of Ari Ezra Waldman, you know, reconfiguring privacy as trust to explain, hey, some of the torts we have actually do fit the new configurations that we're seeing um, in, in cyberspace. Yeah, and I think part of the interesting kind of challenge, both interesting and challenging uh, aspect of this is to is to figure out what exactly is the new part. Sort of like going through our traditional notions of, you know, if you talk about the practice of medicine, you know, what is it that, that is actually changing? And so, you know, part of this is also, I think, the amorphous kind of definition of what AI actually is. And, you know, so if we're talking about clinical decision support software, that's one thing. I think our old bucket fits fairly well. 
But if you're replacing your doctor with an AI agent that then makes the decisions for you, you know we're in a we're in a much different in a much different bucket. Right. If you move from a, a from a constrained rule based system like clinical decision support, yes, moving from there to a locked AI is one step. But when you move one step further to an unlocked AI, which mm-hmm. is continually improving, you need a very different sort of. I think you're forced into a different kind of regulatory space. And, and you were mentioning transparency before, right? And the and the black boxness problem of of machines. And and that's really interesting in terms of what you were saying about sometimes we just need new regulation because um, if we leave this to to self-governance then we will just have a bunch of black box. And then the objection that you hear from some people uh, is, well, humans are a black box too. So being a black box is not new and human decision makers, uh, they're impossible. It's impossible to access what they're thinking. But the irony there is that the law assumes that humans are a black box, right? So we have a focus on accountability because we know that humans are a black box. But sometimes we mistakenly assume that machine learning systems or other types of algorithms are not a black box. Uh, And then um, the disruption exists not about the usual way that the law is dealing with things, but rather about the assumptions that we have on that technology that leads us sometimes to mistakenly regulate them. It's very easy to say we need new a whole new law Mm-hmm. something like that. It's very hard, I think, to identify all new laws, you know, say over the last two, three, four decades. I mean, I guess device regulation at all was new, post-dated drug regulation. I guess Europeans would point to the GDPR, um, but there would be no GDPR without the the privacy directive of 20 years before. And clearly this is a, you know, GDPR is a big build on top of that and also on top of cases like the um, the Spanish Google case and so on. But what, I guess some consumer credit kind of regulation, those kinds of things, maybe FTCA. But I mean, you know, if you could be like, well, what would be your sort of top 10 list of, of revolutionary laws? And the risk is not being nuanced enough, right? When one tries to issue a grand new brand new law that doesn't build on prior or existing things. Uh, the European Parliament passed a couple of months ago this new piece that called uh, AI systems electronic persons. Analogize them to people in a similar way to corporations. Right. Now, I don't know how useful that is and maybe the limited usefulness of that is because it didn't go through a process of evolving trying different rules at a, at a smaller level like the GDPR did to get what it is. Although the, the, the question that it's built on top of, which is to what extent are we going to give AI any kind of social valence is truly a fascinating one and, and luckily not one we're going to have time to indulge in uh, this afternoon. But I guess time is getting a little short and I thought maybe it would be a good way to finish would be to take us back to the conference and what we're all speaking about or what I'm going to set myself from this and say in sort of one sentence if if, if when the folks leave the room after you've spoken tomorrow what's the what's the sort of the single thought in your space that you'd like to to leave the room with there's currently no recognized legal duty with respect to genetic variant reclassification dot 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 but should there be (laughs) excellent we need to find ways to measure privacy concerns to take them into account seriously from point one to not end up in debates about whether we should have or not have something in the first place because we don't know what magnitude to give to such concerns. 
I'm going to be on the AI panel with Claudia. My message is going to be AI is not homogenous. We tend to often treat it as such, um, and that carries risks of both under and over regulation. And a cautious approach that has relying on existing models as we develop new legal regimes is what I'd propose for the time being. I would say a sort of the takeaway for the entire conference is that we would have thought about the promises and perils of emerging health technology. And the takeaway from this was that was the week in health law. So uh, a big thank you to Professors Kafoni, Roberts, and Rochman, and of course to Professor Herb for guest hosting. You are all hanging out on Twitter these days, so I'm going to allow you to speak or spell your Twitter handles, Ignacio. My Twitter handle is at Ignacio Cafone altogether. I am at C E Hupt. At J Roberts U H L C. I'm a bad Twitter. I have absolutely no idea. You are Thank you, Nick. I'm a. at A underscore Rutchman R U T S E H M A N. Because the underscore I think is a certain Gravitas. Something. Well, that was special. Thank you all so much for uh, joining us. Great fun. Three of you first-timers. Jessica, always welcome back. Thank you so much. Show notes will be at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry. No underscores. uh, And no H either. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.